0: This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week we honor the year in music for 2003 along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2003. We also make the case for putting Husker Du into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Plus our spotlight museum is the Museum of Broadway in New York City. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2003. In music for that year, producer Phil Spector was arrested and later convicted for the death of actress Lana Clarkson. Michael Jackson was also arrested that year on child molestation charges. He would later be found not guilty, at least in a court of law, but not in a court of public opinion. A fire in a nightclub in Rhode Island claimed 100 lives when pyrotechnics set off during a performance by the group Great White set the nightclub on fire, quickly spreading and then trapping all the people inside. The Dixie Chicks created controversy when they came out against the Iraq War, which at the time had high public approval ratings. That would later change as the years went on. The iTunes store opened online on April 28th of that year, saving the music industry from itself. The Recording Industry Association of America started suing fans who downloaded music illegally. Celine Dion revived a trend of pop and rock stars doing month-long and multi-year concert runs in casinos in Las Vegas when she started her residency shows there, reviving a trend that hadn't been popular since the 1980s. Groups that were formed in 2003 included the Cheetah Girls, Chloe and Halle, Gnarls Barkley, Equilibrium, Nina Sky, Ramses, and the Pussycat Dolls. Groups that either broke up or took extended breaks in 2004 included BB Mac, Black Flag, Men Without Hats, Pantera, The Cranberries, Quiet Riot, Propeller Heads, Remy Zero, The Righteous Brothers, The Rollins Band, S Club 7, Gangstar, Gravity Kills, Seville, Stone Temple Pilots, Suede, Winger, and Wild Orchid. As usual, a bunch of those groups got back together for a tour or two. Groups that officially got back together in 2003 included The Stooges and Edge of Sanity. Artists who were born in 2003 included Olivia Rodrigo, The Kid Leroy, Bad Barbie, and Polina Bukasevich. Artists who unfortunately passed away in 2003 included country music superstar Johnny Cash and his wife June Carter Cash, Maurice Gibb of the Bee Gees, singer and songwriter Warren Zevon, country music singer Johnny Paycheck, jazz songstress Nina Simone, R&B singer-songwriter Edwin Starr, Noel Redding of the Jimi Hendrix Experience, flute player Herbie Mann, the maestro of love himself, Mr. Barry White, the Queen of Salsa, Celia Cruz, country music singer Slim Dusty, singer Robert Palmer, singer-songwriter Elliot Smith, country music singer Don Gibson, and Bobby Hatfield, along with rappers Sabotage, Camouflage, Half a Mill, and Soldier Slim. 50 Cent had the biggest album of the year on the pop charts with Get Rich or Die Trying. Other big albums were by Nora Jones, Linkin Park, Evanescence, OutKast, Beyonce's debut solo album, R. Kelly, Hilary Duff, Toby Keith, and Coldplay. 50 Cent also scored the number one single of 2003 on the Hot 100 Singles chart with In Da Club. Other hit songs were R. Kelly's Ignition, Sean Paul's Get Busy, Beyoncé and Jay-Z's Crazy in Love, Three Doors Down's When I'm Gone, Matchbox Twenty's Unwell, Chingy's Right Durr, Aaliyah's Miss You, Kid Rock and Sheryl Crow's Picture, and Evanescence's Bring Me to Life. In country music, Alan Jackson and Jimmy Buffett had the biggest hit of the year with It's Five O'Clock Somewhere, other big country singles were by Cheryl Crow, Mark Wills, Daryl Worley, Kenny Chesney, Toby Keith and Willie Nelson, Blake Shelton, Dirks Bentley, and Lone Star. Toby Keith, Brenda Lee, Jody Messina, Leanne Rimes, Trace Atkins, and Alan Jackson all had the best-selling Greatest Hits albums in 2003, but there were other big country albums that were released by Dierks Bentley, Brooks and Dunn, Martina McBride, Brad Paisley, George Strait, Daryl Worley, Wynonna, Gary Allen, Chris Cagle, and Buddy Jewel. In hip-hop, the biggest album, of course, was 50 Cent's Get Rich or Die Trying. Other big albums were released by Jay-Z, G-Unit, Obie Trice, Ludacris, Lil' Kim, J Dilla, Fabulous, Joe Budden, Chingy, T.I., The Neptunes, DMX, OutKast, Eminem, Ja Rule, and Missy Elliott. As far as hip-hop singles went, 50s Into Club was the biggest hit, but he also had competition from himself, specifically the songs 21 Questions, P.I.M.P., and Wangsta. Other hits were by Ludacris, Nelly, Jay-Z, Eminem, Fabulous, Pharrell, Snoop Dogg, G-Unit, Chingy, and a song by legendary wrestler Randy Muscleman Savage called Remember Me, which actually went to number one on the hip-hop charts. Go figure. In Latin music, Juanes was the biggest act. Also having good years were Celia Cruz, Ricky Martin, Shakira, Cumbia Kings, Ricardo Orjona, and La India. Broadway musicals and revivals that opened in 2003 included Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Wicked, Avenue Q, Big River, Gypsy, Little Shop of Horrors, The Three Biggest Jets, Camille Claudel, Disney's Aladdin, A Musical Spectacular, Evil Dead, The Musical, Gone Fishing, Little Fish, The Look of Love, Don Juan, Memphis, Silence, The Musical. Tonight's the Night, and Urban Cowboys. Musical movies included CBGB's Begin Again, Inside Llewellyn Davis, Shrek the Musical, Black Nativity, OJ the Musical, Behind the Candle Opera about Liberace, Battle of the Year, and Popstar, plus documentaries One Direction, This Is Us, Justin Bieber's Believe, Sound City, and Muscle Shoals, and concert films from Pink, Lady Gaga, and Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. There was also everyone's favorite animated musical that kids loved and parents really got annoyed with, Disney's Frozen, which actually came out late in 2003 with just a little bit of fanfare, but not a whole lot, at least by Disney standards, and then went on to become a juggernaut in 2004. I know. Let it go. On the dance charts, the pop and R&B crossover artists who had hits were a rather eclectic bunch in 2003. Among them were Madonna, Mariah Carey, Justin Timberlake, Seal, Pink, Michael Jackson, Danielle Benningfield, Jewel, along with Elvis Presley and the Rolling Stones. Yes, you actually heard that correct. DJ Paul Oakenfold did a remix of Elvis' song Rubberneckin' and there was a remix of the Stones classic Sympathy for the Devil, which hit number one. As far as the more quote-unquote legit dance artists, other than DJ Paul Oakenfold, which is more than legit, there were also hits from The Weekend Players, Paul Van Dyke, Bob Sinclair, DeRude, Boomcat, Christine W., Anastasia, Robbie Rivera, B.T., The Funky Green Dogs, Laura Passini, Chris Cox, Becky Bailing, and Deborah Cox. Probably the longest lasting song of 2003 in terms of both impact on both radio and in DJ and festival mixes to this absolute very day is Benny Benazzi's classic electro house anthem, Satisfaction. In awards for the music of 2003, Outkast became the first hip-hop act to win the Grammy Award for Best Album with Speakerbox The Love Below. Coldplay won Record of the Year for Clocks, Luther Vandross and Richard Marks won Song of the Year for Dance With My Father, and Evanescence won Best New Artist, which had yet another one of those awkward moments when fellow New Artist nominee 50 Cent went on stage when Evanescence won to actually complain about the fact that Evanescence won, because that's a classy move. At the American Music Awards, Madonna won Artist of the Year. At the Billboard Music Awards, 50 Cent won Artist of the Year. At the MTV Video Music Awards, Madonna kissed Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera, which was all anybody could talk about for at least a good three months or so. But aside from that, the actual winner for Video of the Year went to Missy Elliott for Work It. Outcast won Album of the Year at the Soul Train Music Awards. Beyoncé and Faith Hill won the music categories at the People's Choice Awards. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Latvia that year, the country of Turkey won for the song Every Way That I Can. Alan Jackson won Entertainer of the Year at the Country Music Association Awards, and Toby Keith won Entertainer of the Year at the Academy of Country Music Awards. The Darkness won Best British Album for Permission to Land, and Dido won Best Song for White Flag at the Brit Awards. Sam Roberts won Best Album for We Were Born in a Flame, while Nelly Furtado won Best Song for Powerless Say What You Want at the Juno Awards. Outerfinger won Album of the Year for Vulture Street, and Delta Goodrem won Song of the Year for Born to Try at the Aria Music Awards. At the Tony Awards, Hairspray won Best Musical, and Nine won Best Revival of a Musical. The Pulitzer Prize for Music was won by John Adams for On the Transmigration of Souls, Steve Reich for Three Tales, and Paul Schoenfield for Camp Songs musically at the academy awards the movie return of the king won both music categories with the song into the west winning best song and howard shore winning best original score dizzy rascal won the mercury music prize for the album boy in the corner the 2003 rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremony was held on march 10th at the waldorf astoria hotel in new york city during the ceremony the hall inducted drummer Benny Benjamin, pianist Floyd Kramer, and saxophonist Steve Douglas into the Sidemen category. Record executive Mo Ostin was inducted into the Non-Performers category. As far as the Performers category went, the induction class was stacked with popular talent as artists ACDC, The Police, The Righteous Brothers, and The Clash were all inducted, along with this next group. Declan Patrick McManus was born on August 25, 1954 in London, England. Both of his parents were in the music industry, although through different means. His mother worked in a record shop while his father was a jazz trumpet player. Declan ended up living in Liverpool when he was a kid, and during his childhood, he developed his love of music, except that he wasn't too sure about pursuing it because of the troubles that he saw his parents going through in the industry. Even as he decided to finally go for it, Declan kept his job as a computer operator and clerk at a bank until he put out his first solo album. In 1972, while still in Liverpool, he joined a folk rock band called Rust, who put out a couple of quick albums. By 1973, Declan was sick and tired of Liverpool and wanted to move to London. He arranged a transfer to a new bank in London so that he would have money while he pursued his dream. A very smart idea. He also started going by the name Declan Costello, as Costello was an old family performing name and was much easier to spell and pronounce than McManus. He joined a band called Flip City, but no one in Flip City was actually really all that serious about having a music career, so Declan left. And for the next few years, Declan worked around town as D.F. Costello and pounded the pavements, doing gigs, and perfecting his songwriting skills. He also got married and had a kid. In 1976, Declan and his family moved closer to the Heathrow International Airport portion of London so that they could save some money. He also found out about the punk rock scene, which absolutely changed his career. He also managed to get a demo tape into the right hands at an independent record label called Stiff Records in 1976, and while working on his first album, he used the band Clover as his backup band. In 1977, Declan debuted with his first solo album, My Aim is True, which was produced by Nick Lowe, and just when he was about to release that album, he decided to form a new band called The Attractions. He got Bruce Thomas for bass guitar, Pete Thomas, no relation, for drums, and Steve Mason on keyboards. Steve was given the stage name Steve Naive by fellow music artist Ian Drury for Steve's naivety. With this group, Elvis, as he now was calling himself, did a quick tour to promote his solo album. One of those tour stops was on Saturday Night Live, where he and the band were a replacement for the act that was supposed to perform that night, The Sex Pistols. Elvis was a fan of Jimi Hendrix. He was especially a fan of something Hendrix did on television. Once, during a TV performance, Hendrix stopped playing the song he was supposed to and started playing the song that he really wanted to play. So Elvis thought that it would be a great idea, with this being his first album, mind you, to do that on this show. And on December 17th, on Saturday Night Live, Elvis stopped playing the song Less Than Zero right in the middle of the song and started playing Radio Radio, a song the TV network NBC and Saturday Night Live executive producer Lorne Michaels told him not to perform, That incident got him banned from the show. Supposedly for life, but he would be back in 1989. The stunt slash tribute to Hendrix did get him a lot of exposure, though, and also a rep as Rock's next angry young man. During this time, he and the attraction started working on the second album. It was recorded, for the most part, at Eden Studios in London. The recording sessions themselves were largely uneventful. The album, This Year's Model, was released on March 17, 1978. The songs continued Elvis' trend of mixing punk, pop rock, new wave, and ballads. The big songs off the initial release were Chelsea, Lipstick, Vogue, and Pump It Up, which still gets played at sports stadiums worldwide to psych up the crowd. Other worldwide releases of the album added songs like Elvis's ode to people's fascination with watching crime on television called "Watching the Detectives. Chart-wise, the album went to number 30 in America, but it went to number 4 in England and was the 39th biggest selling record of that year in England. After that, Elvis Costello and the Attractions released the album's armed forces, Get Happy, Trust, Almost Blue, Imperial Bedroom, Punch the Clock, and Goodbye Cruel World. Then Elvis did an album with both the Attractions and a new backup band called the Confederates, then did another album with the Attractions in 1986 called Blood and Chocolate, while the Attractions actually did their own album without Elvis at one time. And then... That was it with the attractions until 1994 when they recorded another album called Brutal Youth and 1996's All This Useless Beauty. Pete Thomas and Steve Naive continued backing up Elvis on a lot of his albums while Bruce Thomas quit due to a falling out between himself and Elvis. In fact, when the attractions were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Bruce showed up but he didn't play with the group during the ceremony. When asked why, Elvis Costello said that he only plays with professional musicians. That's a quote. Ouch. Way to make it hurt, Elvis. During their run, the attractions didn't have a lot of hits on the pop charts. In fact, even though a lot of their songs are now classic radio staples, chart-wise, Elvis Costello and the Attractions wouldn't have a huge hit in America until 1983 with Every Day I Write the Book, thanks to the video playing in heavy rotation on MTV. Such was the power of MTV at the time. Still, they're considered one of the greatest rock groups to come out of Great Britain in the late 1970s and early 1980s, with now-classic rock songs like Watching the Detectives, Pump It Up, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, and Allison, Less Than Zero, The Only Flame in Town, and Every Day I Write the Book. Presented for induction by 1994 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee Sir Elton John, Elvis Costello, Pete Thomas, Steve Naive, a.k.a. Steve Mason, and Bruce Thomas, Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Class of 2003. Before we go any further, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast, where we go over the events, music releases, births, and passings for that day in music history, the Music History Today podcast drops each and every day, including on the weekends on this channel, the Music History Today Network, and also on our Music History Today Network YouTube page. Now, back to the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week, we're going to look at the case for putting Husker du into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Back in the 1980s, there was an indie band that came out of Minnesota called Husker Du. Between 1983 to 1987, they put out six albums, and three of their four indie albums did very well on the UK indie charts. Their debut album, 1983's Everything Falls Apart, did not chart. However, 1984's Zen Arcade went to number 11, 1985's New Day Rising went to number 10, and 1985's Flip Your Wig went to number 1. They put out two albums in one year. Then they switched gears and signed with Warner Brothers Records and released 1986's Candy Apple Grey and 1987's Warehouse Songs and Stories. Both of those major label albums went top 140 in America, but neither actually cracked the top 100 They also released four live albums, three EPs, and three compilation albums. They also released ten singles, two of which hit the UK Indie Charts with 1984's 8 Miles High hitting number 22 and 1985's Makes No Sense at All hitting number 2. None of their albums or singles actually hit the American Charts in earnest, which is why most of you may have not have heard of them, to be honest. Husker Du were actually led by influential guitarist and singer Bob Mould, along with bassist Greg Norton and drummer Grant Hart. They started out as a hardcore punk band, then switched sounds to alternative rock. They were considered one of the most important American indie bands of the 1980s, even though they went the corporate route with the last two albums. And among their many admirers and bands that they influenced with a hardcore yet melodic sound were Nirvana, The Pixies, and The Smashing Pumpkins, to name just a few. Unfortunately, their lack of chart success will probably keep them out of the hall for a while longer. However, the hall needs to start recognizing the indie bands who influenced the punk and alternative sounds of the 1980s and 90s, and because of their influence, Husker Du deserves to be among the greats of punk and indie rock and also deserves to be among the greats at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's a museum in the heart of Times Square in New York City that's dedicated to the history of Broadway shows that you may not be aware of. The Museum of Broadway is at 145 West 45th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. The museum opened within the past year or so and has memorabilia from such shows as Wicked, Hamilton, among many others. The museum is open Monday through Friday, 9.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m., Saturdays from 9.30 a.m. to 8.00 p.m., and Sundays from 9.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. Ticket prices are actually kind of expensive as far as museum tickets go. General admission is from $34 to $41. Flexible entry is $49. Daily anytime entry is $69. Seniors are $32 and students are $29. Like I said, kinda expensive. They do, however, have reduced prices for the first Tuesday of every month And their museum matinee, which is Wednesday from 12.30 to 4.30 p.m. Museumofbroadway.com is their website, and we'll throw that into the show notes as usual. Now then, what if I told you that a now-famous Broadway show got popular because of an album? You would say, sure, that happens all the time. Green Day and American Idiot, for instance. True. True. But shows like that were adapted only after the album, American Idiot, movie, insert any Disney movie into this one, or songbook, Billy Joel, Motown, Carol King, whatever, became popular first. This next story is about how a Broadway show became popular because it was purposely marketed as an album first. See, back in the late 1960s, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice had a show called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It wasn't too popular at the time, playing mainly in churches over in England. Undeterred, they decided to work on what would be their third musical with an uncontroversial subject matter that people would flock to like crazy, Jesus Christ. Yep, no controversy there. Just to kick that up a notch, they concentrated the story on Judas. Okay. Then, to take it even further, they decided not to portray Judas as a villainous backstabber, but as someone who was bothered with the fact that Jesus had a massive following and was becoming a celebrity. Still, that shouldn't stop anyone from backing this new venture, should it? After all, it's the 1960s, free love, hippies and all that stuff, you know. Surely, people would fork over the money for this. Um, no, <laughs> not even close. Financial backers were shockingly, shockingly not ready to fork over millions to get involved in something that would have massive controversy. Andrew and Tim were stuck. How could they get people to back this? Then they got an idea. How about they put out the cast concept album first just to whet everyone's appetites and to get them used to this whole thing? They gathered up a cast that included some people who would later become famous, singer Helen Reddy, who would have a huge hit with the song I Am Woman, Murray Head, who had the hit One Night in Bangkok, and Yvonne Elliman, who sang If I Can't Have You from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. They recorded this album in September of 1969, and then on September 10, 1970 in England and October 27, 1970 in America, they released their album. The reaction, as you would expect from virtually anything that Weber and Rice has ever done, was not met kindly by the critics. They trashed it. The BBC, for its part, banned the album, calling it sacrilegious didn't matter though, the album did its job. It became a huge smash and got the public excited for the Broadway show, which by then had found financial backing. In July of 1971, after getting the financial backing that it needed finally, the musical production of Jesus Christ Superstar had its first official run. Not on Broadway, but at the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where they staged it as a concert. By the fall of 1971, the production had become so popular that unauthorized productions started popping up all over America, from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles. The official Broadway production opened on October 12, 1971 at the Mark Hellinger Theater at 237 West 51st Street. The theater was named after journalist Mark Hellinger and, at one time, had been a movie theater. Jeff Fenholt played Jesus Christ. Ben Vereen and Carl Anderson both played Judas, switching off when one needed a break or became ill. Paul Ainsley played Herod. Barry Denon played Pontius Pilate. And Yvonne Elliman played Mary Magdalene. The critics were split on the original production. Some Christians called it blasphemous, while Jewish leaders weren't thrilled with it either. For others, it was the fact that two African Americans played Judas. Cancel culture and all that. No matter, though. The production went on to be nominated for five Tony Awards, including Best Score, although it didn't win any. It did, however, win a Drama Desk Award and a Theater World Award. It then went to London at the Palace Theatre in 1972 and other places from there. It was also adapted into a film in 1973 that was nominated for numerous Golden Globe Awards. Just goes to show you, sometimes you have to bet on yourself and your dreams and come up with a different way in order to get your dreams accomplished. Jesus Christ Superstar The Musical whose mementos you can find in the Museum of Broadway, in Times Square, in New York City. The Music Halls of Fame podcast is part of the Music History Today network, which can be found under Music History Today on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from and also on our YouTube page under Music History Today. Thank you very much for listening.